purple tie. I didn't know Craig was going to do this, so I'll just jump in. And I, uh, I suggested, because we both knew the symbolism he, he was uh, referring to, that Craig referred to, and, uh, but there's another symbol of purple. When a purple garment is draped around a cross, you realize what that stands for, right? That Jesus' royalty was nailed to the cross, but he's not on the cross anymore, and the tomb is empty. He is the resurrected Savior, and you'll see it a lot at Easter. But I just said, wouldn't it be cool if the Sunday before the inauguration, everybody here wore purple to signal not so much that we're coming together politically, but to say our king is Jesus. He died, he rose, he lives, and we await a kingdom that's not of this world, and we live to bring the values and the character of that kingdom to earth. So I appreciate that. We're going to sing a song because uh, we can only go so long without standing up. We're programmed by TV, whether we like it or not, to have a commercial break about every seven minutes or in church to have a movement of singing. So I'm going to ask you to stand up a second. And uh, we're about to sing a song. I, I, I love this song always, but about 25 years ago, we sang in Thailand at a leprosarium, a place where lepers had gone because in Buddhism, when you're marred, it's considered your fault because you had bad karma. And so these people were all shuttled off and... Uh, uh, they lived alone, and we had one of these incredible moments that I'll tell you about some, some other time if I haven't already. But when we left, this was the last song we sang to remind us that in Christ, there are no goodbyes. There's just, let's look forward to the next until. And this is our biggest waiting for the until. Let's sing. We shall assemble on the mountain. We shall assemble at the throne. With humble hearts into His presence. We bring an offering of song. Glory and honor and dominion. Assemble on the mountain, we shall assemble at the throne, with humble hearts into his presence, we bring an offering of song, glory and honor and dominion, glory and honor and dominion, unto the
was hard to sit down after that, but uh, I'm going to ask you to sit down just for a second because they're trying to count. They can't count when we're standing up. And most of y'all get uh, grumpy if you have to stand up and sit down too much, so we'll let you sit down a little bit and uh, make sure those chairs don't go flying off into the air during the sermon. I'm going to ask you to participate at the beginning and the end of the message today. Some of you are not going to want to, I'll tell you that, but you're going to. Okay? It's okay. It's legal. You're being asked to do this. In just a second, I'm going to ask you to say your name out loud. Okay? Now, I'm I'm, going to get a little help. Will you say your name out loud? (laughs) Yeah, you can do it. Come on. Jed. All right, can you say a little louder? Jed. Can you say your last name with it, Jed? All right, one more time, a little louder. Jed Bowers. Okay. You heard how Jed said his name? You're going to say your name louder on the count of three. Now, I don't want anybody screaming, but I want you to say your name out loud on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. Jed, I didn't hear you say your name. Now, maybe you picked out a name. I couldn't pick out a name. I was going to try to. Now, on the count of three, I want you to say the name Jesus Christ. Okay? You ready? One, two, three. Jesus Christ. All right. I, I don't even have to preach the sermon now. Because you just made the most important point. You know, here's the point. As long as we are all about what we want and what we like and what we think is best and having our voice heard in church, all we get is confusion and noise and disagreement. And you look around our churches and our tribe of Churches of Christ, That's what's been going on the last 30 years. We fussed and fought over all sorts of stuff. It's not like it used to be, or it could be better this way, whatever. It's not the way I want it. It's too long. It's too short. We stand up. We sit down. We fight, fight, fight. I mean, that's been our M.O. But... When our focus is to lift up Jesus and his message and his name is exalted, then his people, us, we can work together and we can live in unity and be his presence, which is what the church is supposed to be. Now, we're going to spend our time this morning focusing on Ephesians 4. And if you want to have your Bible open there, uh, I encourage you to do do that. Like Romans, even though Romans wasn't specifically designed this way, the book of Romans is the story of salvation that figures out how the Jewish message and the Jewish people fit in with the gospel that's now becoming a majority Gentile movement. And it's a great book about salvation and grace through faith. It's incredible. The book of Ephesians is really Paul's book on what the church is supposed to be. 
And in the first three chapters, we get this, what God has done to adopt us into his family and call us to his mission. In chapter one is praise. I, I guarantee you, Rodney could not sit still if I just started off going Ephesians 1. And what's amazing about Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, is English puts punctuation marks in there, but it's like Paul just went as long as he could until he had to take a breath, and then he finished it to the praise of his glorious grace. Then he did it a little longer the second time to the praise of his glory, and then he did it a third time to the praise of his glorious grace. It's a song that he just pours out a praise. Then chapter 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. God's created you in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he planned long ago. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. God's made you alive. It's a great story. And then the second half is, okay, we've been saved from sin and death, but we've been brought into a body that mixes all sorts of people together, just like we heard Craig talk about. Because Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. It separates people. And then in chapter 3, Paul says, This is the gospel of grace that God's called me to preach. And I'm inviting you to join me in this mission. And then right in the middle of the book is this incredible prayer. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches you be strengthened with might by his spirit in your inner being. And he just goes. And he finishes that prayer. By saying, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forevermore. Amen. The letters held together by this incredible burst of praise. Then the last three chapters, well, it's about how we're supposed to live as kingdom people, as disciples of Jesus, folks whose lives are being tuned to the tuning fork of the cross and the empty tomb. And the first rattle out of the box in chapter 4 is we get a message that directly aligns with commitment 3. We, being a diverse group, will pursue unity as we focus on Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, look at Ephesians 4. Now, I want you to look how Ephesians 4 begins i got to catch up on my notes so I don't run ahead with my slides too far. But Ephesians 4.1 begins to roll out how we're to live in response to all that God has done for us. Verses 1 through 16 are our commitment three. And in this, he details four essentials about unity. Commitment three. And we're going to just look at them about that fast this morning. But I want you to have a chance to grab a glimpse of them. But before you get there, I want to give you a little insight into how important Paul is on this. I remember as a little boy with two other brothers that were younger than I was that were on the borderlands of uh, driving our mama crazy because we were overly ornery. And on one special day, we were especially overly ornery, and we had not been obedient. And this time, she didn't bring out the bolo paddles. Now, those of you that are in my age group remember when party favors 
were given by moms that were all in collusion with each other. Because every one of those bolo kids, there's a bunch of you may not even know what they are. It's a little ball with a rubber band that was made of nothing that was attached to a paddle. And by the time you got home with it, it was nothing but a paddle. And we all knew one went in the kitchen drawer and one went in another drawer. And they were going to be turned around and there was no favor in bringing that thing home. Whatever the opposite of favor is, is what landed on my backside. Well, this time she didn't bring out the bolo paddle. She came, sat down, and she was crying. She said, don't you boys love me? Well, yeah, Mom, we love you. No, you don't, because you would do what I ask you to do if you love me. (laughs) You know... That's turning the mama guilt burner up to high. (laughs) But that's the point. She didn't use it much. Kind of came out, but it was a little different tack when we were in high school. And we all got another dose of it during that year or two. She didn't use it often. Well, Paul plays a card in Ephesians 4.1 to turn up the emotional fire. Notice what he says in verse 1. This kicks off these four essentials. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Okay, folks. I tell you, lots of important stuff. But just remember, when this is being read in your assembly and you're having good church together, And you're enjoying each other's presence. I'm stuck in some dank, stinky prison, not knowing if I'm going to live or die or not, so this is really important, or I wouldn't share it with you. He plays the prison card. And it's his way of putting a neon sign that says, you better pay attention to this. This is really important. So what's the first point? The first point is we got to have the right attitude for our efforts. And so in verses 2 and 3, says, be completely humble. Whew, that's hard, isn't it? Because we kind of think humility is kind of this hang-doggy thing. But humility is not a hang-doggy thing where we just kind of mope around and don't have our head up and we feel bad about stuff. Humility is being like Jesus, who by nature was God but did not cling to that, didn't claim it. He didn't use his get-out-of-jail-free card because he was the Son of God. But he emptied himself and took the form of a human being and became like us. And he was obedient to the Father. And he was obedient to the Father not only in everything he did, but he even went to the cross when he didn't want to go to the cross, when he begged in prayer that he not have to go to the cross. But he did it because he was completely humble. So God exalted him. Be gentle. Be gentle. One of the most manly of all traits is to have strength and use tenderness. One of the most powerful things that a woman has is gentleness. It turns hearts. It may not grab everybody's eye, but it turns hearts. Be patient. 
Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Is it going to be our name we promote? Is it going to be our will we seek? Is it going to be our way that has to be the way? Is it going to be our preference that's going to show up? If that's our agenda, and if our talk at church, at at lunch after church, is what didn't please us, then we've ripped that passage out of the Bible and says we don't care about it. Because what I want and what I think is right is more important than being like Jesus. That's just preaching the truth. That's point one. Four essentials to unity. If we're going to focus on Jesus and be like Jesus and show the world Jesus, then we've got to begin here. And we've got to have the right attitude for our efforts. It doesn't matter how right we may think we are in the way we do church. If we don't have that, we're not with Jesus. It's that simple. You can't ever, 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 ever be right and treat people differently in ways that Jesus would never treat them. Point two. We've got to have the right doctrinal focus for our faith. We've been pretty big on that. I worked with a church not too long ago that their short form to let folks know on their website that they were doctrinally pure was 17 pages single-spaced. This is the way we do church, 17 pages single-spaced. Do you notice what Paul does? Paul says... There's one body, just as there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. And you'll notice that in each cluster, there are three clusters in this seven-point list, but there's a, a, a part of God that's emphasized in each of them. Spirit goes with body and hope, just as you were called. There is one Lord, and tied to that one Lord is one faith and one baptism. And tied to God is there's one Father, God, who is over all and in all and before all, and He's all all. God is God Almighty. Now, I want you to look at that. Because when Paul lays out for a church that's in the crossroads of every kind of religion in Asia Minor, and if you've visited Ephesus, you get a sense of that. If you read about Ephesus, you know that. It was the place where all sorts of religions were the biggest mishmash. It's like Miami today. You had dark magic. You had all sorts of evil arts that were practiced. There was demonology. There was sorcery. There was uh, foretelling. In addition, there were traditional religions. There were new religions like Zoroastrianism. There were all sorts of things. Paul needed to make sure they stayed on the right path. He didn't give them seven pages, 17 pages single-spaced. He gave them seven things. You focus on these seven things. Now, yeah, there's some 
nuances on each of those seven things, but think about it. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. There's, there's just one Lord. And what goes with that one Lord is a faith that's rooted in Him and baptism that participates in life with Him. And there's one God. That God is God Almighty, but He's chosen to be our Father. God made everything, and everything belongs to Him, and He existed before any of it was here, and there's fingerprints of God all throughout everything that He has made. But don't go adding to this in your list of requirements of what makes somebody true. Not and claim it's from Jesus or from Paul. There's a right way to use our gifts. We've all been gifted. That's one of the things that's said repeatedly in the New Testament. When we became a Christian, we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And while we have some talents, some things that we had because God wrote it into our, our DNA, our genetics, when we were born and He put us together in our mother's womb like Psalm 139 talks about. So there's talents, there's these strengths that we have and we have interests that God's developed as we've gone along the way God's at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure Philippians two thirteen says God works everything together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose Romans eight twenty eight. so we have some interest but gifts are not those things gifts are not talents gifts are things we have because the Holy Spirit lives in us And he gives us those things to use for the body and to glorify God. Well, when Paul emphasizes this to the Ephesians, he said, you got to know how to use them. Because each of you have a gift. But there are two different kinds of gifts. There's equipping gifts, and he he gives the the evangelists and pastors and teachers as kind of the modern example of those who have a purpose to equip God's people for works of service or for works of ministry. So a preacher's not just a yacker. He's got to be a life equipper. And that word equip is the same word when Jesus uh, came to, to Peter and Andrew and they were beside the Sea of Galilee and they were working on their nets. You remember what the words were for working on those nets? Think about it. Somebody help me. What's a word for working on those nets? Mending the nets? Preparing the nets, repairing the nets. The same word is used for those nets that's used for what God's leaders, elders and ministers are supposed to do in the church. They're to mend, they're to tend, they're to fix, they're to prepare, and they're to make ready for use. So there's those equipping gifts and then everybody's supposed to use their gifts. And we're not going to be unified because we have the right doctrine. You know, that's never said in Scripture. We're going to be unified because we have the right doctrine. When it says we got to have the same mind, it's talking about how Jesus served. This passage reminds us that we got to have the right doctrine in place, those seven things we looked at, and we got to have the right attitude in place. But we're not going to be unified till we put our gifts to work till we start serving 
So when somebody's nose is out of joint about church, one of the first questions we need to ask, especially if it's our nose that's out of joint, is how have I been serving? And if I haven't been serving or somebody else hadn't been serving, we've got to find a way to help them serve. But most importantly of all, we've got to have the right goal for our life of faith. What is that? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. When we all toot our own horn, when we all focus on our own way, when we all focus on our own uh, voice, there's just noise. But when we say Jesus Christ together, we come together around Jesus. Now, if I were to come stand right here in the smack dab center and I give everybody permission because I know you hear your mother's voice, don't turn around and face the back. Turn around and face the front. Well, everybody can turn around and face the back. We, we got a time out from Mama for a minute. Now, if I were to come here and I say, I want everybody to move in as close as you can and let's get unified. What's going to be your reaction? Well, he's not here for a long time, so I don't have to do what he says anyway. <laughs> this isn't my first rodeo around here, okay? The other thing is, some are you going to go, especially, and, and it's not just millennials and Gen Xers. Now there's Gen Y, and all the advertising is now focused at them, the 16 to 18-year-olds, okay? So we got that bunch, and they're going, this is so cheesy. What is that old dude doing in the middle of our church building? And others are going to go, I want my space. I'm not a huggy, touchy-feely person. Don't cram me in there. And then some have had bypass surgery. And, you know, one of the things that they don't tell you before bypass surgery, a lot of folks get claustrophobia afterwards. And so they want to feel the breeze, and they don't want to be hemmed in. So they're not going to get close. But what would happen, what would happen if Jesus was next to me? And I said, I want to just invite you to come get close to Jesus. And if you've got a burden, he's going to stay here, and he's going to love on you, and he's going to fix what's wrong with you. We'd be just like what was going on in that room. You remember this story? There were four friends, and they had a friend that was paralyzed. And the room was so full, they couldn't even get in the door. Couldn't. So what did they do? They took the little staircase on the outside of the house that the family did in hot weather to get up on top of the house where the breeze blew at night. And they got up on top of that house, and they dug a hole through about four, five, six inches of mud, and then the thatch underneath it, while all these people were in there watching Jesus. And they were crammed in there so tight. And remember, they didn't flip on a light switch, and they didn't have their antiperspirant deodorant in those days. They were crammed in there like sardines, and it was not very well lit. And somebody digs a hole through the ceiling, And the light shines through. Well, if I stood in the center and Jesus was here and you knew it was really Jesus, first of all, this place would be full. And second of all, I wouldn't have to ask you twice to get as close to Jesus as you could get. 
you'd all cluster around it. And you'd stay until he touched you. And he called your name. And he wiped a tear from your eyes. Or he healed what was broken in you. Not just the wounds that you can see on the outside, but the stuff on the inside. Here's the point of Ephesians 4. It's the point we began with. We can try all sorts of human ways to get folks close and be unified. But that's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to move as close to Jesus as we can get, to be as much like Jesus as we can be, and to treat people the way Jesus treated them as much as possible. And the more we do that, what's going to happen? Then little by little, we're going to all move to Jesus, and it's like an upside-down funnel. We start out way spread apart, but the closer we get to Jesus, what happens? The closer we are. And that's really what Commitment 3 is all about. We're going to be a diverse people because uh, God wants us to reach all sorts of people. But we're going to be unified because Jesus is our focus. And Jesus is our goal. And Jesus is the presence, Jesus' presence, what we're trying to restore in the world. Now, I'm going to say something. Some of you are going to be mad at this. But I want you to think about it. The New Testament nowhere says, copy us and be like us. Our goal is not to restore New Testament churches. They were a mess just like we're a mess. But our job is to restore what the New Testament churches were called to restore. You know what that was? To restore the presence of Jesus to the world through the church. And we know that deep in our hearts because what is the church? It's Christ's body. 1 Corinthians 10 says, when we took communion this morning and we broke that bread, though we are many, we took this one bread, we're one body, we're Jesus' presence. And so, we can be a diverse body. In fact, Jesus would like it stirred up a little more and be a little more diverse. And y'all are doing a pretty good job. But you're going to pursue unity not by pursuing unity. You're going to pursue unity by focusing on Jesus. I didn't give you folks those words. Those words came from the heart of your people and the heart of this church and the history and commitment to be Jesus. This morning, we want you to know that you can be a part of Jesus, be used by Him, be valued by Him, to be a part of making His work known. And you can have value and meaning, and you can live forever in a relationship with Jesus. And you don't have to have Him come in and stand in the center of the auditorium and wait till everybody else has been touched. Because He'd like to touch you this morning. You can join his life this morning by confessing him as Lord and sharing in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Colossians 3 says, Christ, who is our life, has chosen to join his life to ours because we've been buried with him in baptism.
And our life is now joined to his forever, hidden with Christ and God, so that when he comes, we're going to share in his glory. If you don't have that assurance, we're going to sing a song. We hope you'll come as we stand and sing. We sing.